0: Find First John, your Bible, and stand with me, and let's read it together. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for this word of truth that you've given to us. We thank you for um, just knowing that your word is reliable. It is uh, trustworthy. It is uh, divinely inspired, and Lord, we thank you that uh, we can build our lives on your word, your truth, and Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be committed to that, and Lord, to know that uh, whatever may happen in our world as our society shifts from one place to another, we know that your word is an anchor for our souls. Your word is steadfast and sure, and it is your truth, and So, Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you that uh, you have provided salvation through Christ. We thank you that uh, we can uh, uh, put our faith and trust in Christ and receive eternal life. And, Lord, we uh, pray that uh, you would help us to make sure that others know that message as well and that we might live in such a way that uh, you would draw others to Christ through us. So Lord, we pray this morning again as we worship that our hearts would be right, Lord, as we observe the the, uh, the Lord's Supper, Lord, that we would uh, also just examine our own hearts and see uh, how our walk is and if we need to uh, reject sin and turn from sin. But Lord, help us to be Your people and to be all that You want us to be. So Lord, bless again this morning and work in our hearts and minds, in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Edmund Hebert writes, The forceful simplicity of its sentences, the notes of finality behind its utterances, the marvelous blending of gentle love, and deep-cutting sternness of its contents, and the majesty of ungarnished thoughts, made First John a favorite with Christians everywhere. He says the plainness of its language makes it intelligible to the simplest saint, while the profundity of its truths challenges the most accomplished scholar. Its grand theological revelations and its unwavering ethical demands have left their enduring impact Upon the thought and life of the Christian church. 1 John is indeed a singular, irreplaceable gem among the books of the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and each one of them is uniquely special in its own way. The miraculous wonder of the doctrine of inspiration is how the singular, Spirit of God takes a multitude of authors and through them accomplishes his revelatory masterpiece. In the case of 1 John, the Divine Spirit takes a unique man in a unique situation and communicates his ageless message. By the time we get to the end of the first century we see third-generation Christians facing perilous times. In the Greco-Roman world, we know that it was a hodgepodge of philosophical ideas and ethical movements. MacArthur says, Religious syncretism and inclusivism were the watchwords of the day. And much like the syncretism of our own day and time, This was not just an attitude of tolerance. It was an amalgamation that resulted in all kinds of cults and mystic religions, especially the proliferation of the Gnostic sects. Any good communicator of God's truth must apply it to the cultural and philosophical currents of the day in which it is communicated. That is exactly what we find in this little book called 1 John. Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, was what America is in our day and time. It had become the melting pot of the world. Because it forms a land bridge between Europe and Asia, it felt the brunt of colliding ideas. There was a constant uh, flow of invasions and migrations from other lands. Does that sound familiar? The imperial cult of emperor worship had become widespread at this time, so there were the loyalists to Rome. In addition to that, there were a number of false gods such as Zeus, Apollo, Asclepius, Dionysus, Sibylle, and Artemis, whose magnificent temple was located in Ephesus and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In such an environment, the church of Jesus Christ is constantly challenged. And we know that God does not take us out of the world when we become believers in Christ. He leaves us in the world, although we're not to be like the world. And yet, it is extremely difficult not to be influenced by the world. It is so easy for the church to become just like the world. And unfortunately, in our day and time, there are those who even make that the goal of the church. Some think the only way to reach the world with the gospel is to be just like the world. And as biblically foolish and spiritually insane as that is, there are countless thousands of modern-day Christians who have fallen into that trap. Jesus had warned us that there would be false prophets who would lead believers astray Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves Paul had warned that there would be savage wolves that would come in among the sheep and devour the flock of the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation 2 and 3 only two of them remained pure doctrinally and it was right here where these seven churches existed that the last of the apostles battled for the purity of the faith MacArthur says though he was by now an old man most likely at least in his 80's Age had not dampened John's fiery zeal for the truth. This is a very relevant book. Translating this into our own time, MacArthur writes In our inclusive age of secularism, postmodernism, relativism, New Age cults, and militant world religions, The apostles' words of warning and assurance are both timely and relevant. As always, the church ignores these warnings at its own peril. Now, you know what to expect as we begin the study of a new book. You've been here very long, you know what we're going to do. We're not even going to get into the text this morning, but we're going to lay the foundation of this study. There are some critical things that we need to know about this book before we launch into a study of its truths. These are basic elements that we need to know about any New Testament book, but especially this one that has such a unique purpose and context. You might see these introductory elements as the tools by which we rightly interpret and apply this book of the Bible. Now, some might see this just as boring details that only Bible scholars care about. But you see, if we fail to understand these things, we will likely miss the entire thrust of the message contained in this book. So we're going to take the time to go through these this morning, and we begin with the originator. The originator. From the divine side, the originator of these words are the very Spirit of God. But from the human side, we need to ask about the one through whom the Holy Spirit inspired these truths. Now, we could just say the Apostle John wrote this and move on. But sometimes it helps to understand the issues connected with the authorship of New Testament books. We're not told in 1 John that the Apostle John wrote this. In fact, 1 John and Hebrews are the only two New Testament epistles that do not identify their human authors. I guess we could include the other epistles of John in that as well. But this is typical of John's writing. Of the five writings of John, only the Revelation names John as its author. The humility of John drives him to focus on Christ and not on himself. But from the first century... All the way to the end of the 18th century, the church consistently accepted the Apostle John as the author of this letter. It was not until the rise of destructive higher criticism that this was ever doubted. The truth of the matter is that the evidence for the Apostle John as the author of this book has overwhelming internal and external verification. First of all, the internal. First, John displays remarkable similarities to the gospel of John. MacArthur says both works present a series of stark contrasts with no third alternative. For example, light and darkness, life and death, love and hate, truth and lies, love of the Father... And love of the world, Children of God. Children of the devil. Being in the world, but not of the worlds. To know God or not to know God. To have eternal life or not to have eternal life. You see this all the way through. There are also a number of grammatical similarities between the two. These... Two books have many words and phrases in common, many of which are found nowhere else in Scripture. The same theological themes are developed in both, such as the only begotten Son of God and the truth that Jesus Christ is the source of true life and light. The author of 1 John, claims to be an eyewitness to the events of Christ's life in contrast to the second and third generation Christians that he addresses. This considerably narrows down the possible authors. This would mean that the author had to have been one of the few remaining disciples who were intimately associated with Jesus and who were still alive at the end of the first century when this was written. In fact, the author of this book writes with an air of apostolic authority. John Stott says, there is nothing tentative or apologetic about what he writes. He does not hesitate to call certain classes of people liars, deceivers, or antichrists. He supplies Tests by which everybody can be sorted into one of two categories. According to their relation to the tests, they either have God or have not. They either know God or do not. They either have been born of God or have not. They either have life or abide in death. They walk in the darkness or they walk in the light. They are children of God, or they are children of the devil. He says the dogmatic authority of the writer is seen particularly in his statements and in his commands. In other words, he clearly expects his listeners to obey the commands that are given here. And only an apostle of Christ could write with this kind of authority. As far as the second type of verification, Ebert says 1 John is better attested by external evidence than any of the other general epistles. There are possible or definite allusions to 1 John in such late 1st and early 2nd century works as Clement of Rome's 1st and 2nd epistles to the Corinthians... The Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Epistle of Diognetus. Justin Martyr's Apologies and Dialogue with Trifo. Polycarp's Epistle to the Philippians. And the writing of Polycarp's contemporary Papias. Eusebius of Caesarea in his famous Historia. Ecclesiastica, placed 1 John among the Homo Logo which would be the acknowledged books of the New Testament canon. He wrote, the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistles, that would be 1 John, has been accepted without dispute, both now and now, and in ancient times. First John was also included in the second century list of canonical books known as the Muratorian Canon. The first church father, who quoted directly from 1 John, and claimed the apostle John as its author, was Irenaeus. But this is significant because he was a direct disciple of Polycarp, Who was a direct disciple of John himself? Irenaeus' contemporaries, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, also attributed 1 John to the the Apostle, as did Origen, Dionysius of Alexandria, and Cyprian in the third century. So you get the idea of how well attested this book is. The evidence is overwhelming. So, who was this apostle? He was the youngest of the two sons of Zebedee. He and his older brother James were dubbed by Jesus the sons of thunder. His mother was Salome, who contributed to Jesus' ministry and may have been the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if that was the case, then Jesus and John were cousins. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. But when Jesus was identified as the Messiah, he immediately left to follow him. Along with Peter, he and James were part of the inner circle of disciples. John became known as the apostle of love and the one that leaned on Jesus' breast during the Last Supper. When Jesus was being crucified, he committed the care of his mother to John. After the resurrection, John became one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. And in the early chapters of Acts, he's seen as sharing in the work of mighty miracles alongside Peter. But after chapter 8, he disappears. And according to tradition... John spent the last decades of his life in Ephesus, overseeing the churches of Asia Minor. Apparently, he was there until he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And then later, he was return, He was set free and he returned to Ephesus. It's likely that he wrote his gospel and his three epistles during his first day at Ephesus... And then compiled the revelation either on the Isle of Patmos or afterwards in his second residence at Ephesus. He eventually died there in Ephesus and was buried there. Despite his later reputation as the apostle of love, John was always a son of thunder. He had a fiery temperament. And you may remember that he, at one time, even wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village who refused Jesus Christ. He and his brother once asked Jesus for a prominent place in the future kingdom, only to be promised a cup of suffering instead. And by the way, that prophecy was fulfilled in the fact that James became the first martyr, and John then lived a long life of suffering for Christ's sake. And although he mellowed over time, he never lost his passion for the truth. This was later borne out by an account from Polycarp, who wrote that John the disciple of the Lord going to bathe at Ephesus, and perceiving the heretic Sorinthus, the enemy of the truth within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Sorinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Now, I spent a lot of time on this first point, Because we need to understand who the author is. But we need to move on now to a second element, which is the organization. The organization. I'm not going to say a lot about this, but there are some who have questioned the structure of this epistle. This letter does not have the typical elements of a letter. It does not have a salutation at the beginning. It doesn't have a greeting at the conclusion. Uh, Some have said it really reads more like a sermon or a tractate. McGee says it bears all the marks of a message from a devoted pastor who had a love and concern for a definite group of believers. It's a message from a pastor who loves his people. In this way, we would have to say it's similar to the book of Hebrews. It also ends very abruptly like the book of James. It contains no formal thanksgiving for the readers, as is characteristic of Paul's letters. Ebert writes it does not contain a single personal name beyond a passing reference to Cain, nor does it offer a single concrete statement personal, historical, or geographic, concerning either the writer or the readers. It is destitute of all that is merely local or specific. Now, it probably still should be classified as a letter, because the author deals here with actual life situations being experienced by people that he knows and loves, But because it is not local or specific, it probably is intended to be a general letter to all the churches in that region. However, I need to say something about the style here, because it's very different from the other epistles in the New Testament. Ogilvy writes, whereas Paul writes in the tradition of Greek rhetoric, John, on the other hand, writes more like the psalmist or the writer of Proverbs. He repeats a lot. He writes with the use of parallelism. The repetition of ideas is uh, seen all throughout his writings. He says, We who are children of Greek thought and method of argument are more acquainted with the intellectual style of Paul... But the poet and musician is more acquainted with the style of John. Like the poet or artist, John spends much time on one detail, and repetition is welcomed and embraced. I can't resist one more quote here. He says, It will do us no good to remind our writer that he has already made that point in chapter 2, because he wants to tell it to us again in chapter 5, yet with a slightly different accent and emphasis. He knows exactly what he's doing. And if we watch closely and accept his way of expression, we will be deeply challenged intellectually and also poetically moved by the sheer buildup of intensity and overall Design. Ogilvy likens John's style to that of throwing rocks into a pond and watching them form rings and then throwing other rocks and the rings overlap one another. So John throws out various themes like rocks and we see the waves reverberate all throughout this book. Hebert points out that his method is not that of formal argument, but of categorical affirmation. His writings may be characterized as intuitive rather than analytic and deductive. He speaks with a tone of authority. He sets forth his pronouncements and he passes on without stopping to vindicate them. Scroggie says... He thinks in terms of ultimates. His colors are black and white. There is no gray. In fact, no other writer in the New Testament employs stronger words of denunciation of sin and error than John does. Thirdly, we see the orientation. And let me just summarize this for the sake of time. This letter was written by John from the city of Ephesus in the early 90s A.D. The Gospel of John was written before this in the 80s, and the Revelation was written after it in the late 90s. The recipients are primarily Gentiles in the area of Asia Minor. According to Eusebius... John was exiled to Patmos in 94 A.D., but returned to Ephesus after the death of Emperor Domitian. He remained there until the time of his own death and was buried there at Ephesus. So it was clearly the believers at Ephesus and the rest of Asia Minor who were the recipients of this letter. They were primarily converts from gentile paganism they had to be warned repeatedly against the danger of idolatry but this leads us fourthly to the occasion what was the main reason for the writing of this letter the basic reason for the writing of first john was the apostles deep concern for the spiritual welfare of the congregations in asia minor There is no explicit reference to any persecution in this letter, so words of consolation like you find in 1 Peter are absent here. Hebert writes, The recipients were indeed familiar with the hatred of the world, but apparently they were not at this time subjected to an officially prompted hatred against them. Instead, it was a hatred which arose out of the moral antagonism between the church and the worlds. You and I experience that all the time. The greatest danger for the churches of that day was not really external persecution. It was really internal seduction. Their greatest danger was false teaching that had begun to infiltrate the church. And of course, the Apostle Paul had warned about this danger in Acts twenty, twenty-nine, and 30. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. One of the greatest dangers... Christianity is not that it will be destroyed by some outside force, but that it will be changed through faulty teaching on the inside. And many times this can come from some who think they can improve it in some way. Some think they can make it more intellectually sophisticated or morally acceptable to more people. Some think we need to make Christianity more attractive in some way. The Greco-Roman world of that day was filled with all kinds of competing voices. So there were those in the church who began to think that, you know, we need to make the gospel more appealing in order to compete with all these other philosophies. The false teachers of that day were highly influenced by the popular philosophies and trends that were going around. Their heretical teaching represented the beginning stages of what is now understood as Gnosticism. And by the second century, this movement had grown into an enormous threat to the church. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. MacArthur says it was an amalgam of various pagan, Jewish, and quasi-Christian systems of thought. It was highly influenced by Greek thought, especially that of Plato, and it essentially held that all matter is evil and spirit is good. This philosophical dualism led to a number of theological heresies, particularly that of rejecting the humanity and or deity of Christ. For many of the Gnostics, Jesus could not have possibly had a human body because the body is evil. So this led to a basic denial of the doctrine of the Incarnation. The denial of the Incarnation really took two forms. Some, known as the Docetists taught that Jesus' body was not a real physical body, but only appeared to be a human body. The Greek word dokeo means to seem. So the idea was that Jesus just seemed to have a human body, but in actuality, he did not, according to them. So John is going to make it absolutely clear in this letter that he, as an eyewitness, had actually physically touched Jesus' physical body. He's going to verify that this teaching is false. Other false teachers, such as serenthus taught that the Christ Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, but left him before the crucifixion. Barclay explains that serenthus drew a... Definite distinction between the human Jesus and the divine Christ. He said that Jesus was a man born in a perfectly natural way, and he lived in special obedience to God, and after his baptism, the Christ in the shape of a dove descended on him. Sorenthus then claimed that at the end of Jesus' life, the Christ withdrew from him so that the Christ never suffered at all. It was the human Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. Interestingly, this false teaching shows up in the apocryphal gospels, such as the Gospel of Peter. This false writing appeared around 130 A.D. and claimed that Jesus showed no pain at all on the cross. And because it was at this moment that the Christ Spirit left his human body, what he really cried out from the cross was, My power, my power, why have you forsaken me? In the false writing known uh, as the Acts of John, there was a claim that, while the human Jesus was being crucified on Calvary, John was actually talking to the divine Christ in a cave on the hillside, and Christ said to him, quote, John, to the multitude down below, I am being crucified, but listen to what I say. Nothing of the things they say of me have I suffered. This is total heresy so john is going to hit this head-on in this epistle he will show that the very same person who was baptized was the same person who was crucified and he's going to show that he was fully man and fully god all throughout his entire life on earth now why are these doctrines so dangerous because they not only undermined the biblical teaching of the Incarnation, they also threatened the very doctrine of atonement. You see, if Jesus was not really fully God and fully man, then he could not have been the perfect sacrifice for our sin. In addition to this, the Gnostics' theological dualism destroyed the moral and ethical standards of the gospel. Many of them believed that since the body was evil, doesn't matter what anyone does physically. And this led to all kinds of gross immorality. So John has to address this as well. The Gnostic belief that all matter is evil actually produced three different responses. There were the ascetics who turned to celibacy and fasting and the rigid control of all human desires, including for many of them a deliberate ill-treatment of the body. Secondly, there was the response of those who were indulging the appetites of the body to the fullest, believing that nothing done in the body matters, and this is the form that led to much immorality. There was also a third response, which is interesting to note. This was the notion that the Gnostic regarded himself as altogether spiritual, having shed the bondage of physical matter. This led to the idea that he had reached perfection and no longer sinned. So John will clearly deal with this false teaching as well he's going to say things like if we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us that's chapter 1 verse 8 he's going to say if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us that's verse 10 and by the way don't think for a moment that Gnosticism is just some ancient philosophy that's no longer a problem It is still very much a problem in the church today. McGee says the same principle is that which drives modern liberalism today. We still have those who are holding to the false teaching of Gnosticism. We still have those who are holding to the false teaching of perfectionism. None of this has really gone away. And then there was another problem that was posed as a threat by Gnosticism. It became a serious threat to Christian fellowship. The Gnostics viewed themselves as the spiritual elite, and therefore looked down on all those who were not part of the elite. The Gnostics believed that they were in on some kind of secret knowledge that the masses of People had no clue about So they scorned the unenlightened ones who did not have this special knowledge they supposedly had. This was destroying the fellowship in the church. And so John would say things like, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. That's chapter 2, verse 9. And he's going to say things like, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John's going to deal with this. So with all this false teaching going on, the apostle John could not just sit idly by... And allow this to go unchecked. Like any loving pastor, he was deeply concerned about the danger all this posed for the church. But the message of this book goes deeper than this. So, lastly, we need to talk about the objectives. John's purpose for this letter is not only, it's not just polemical. He also has a deep pastoral concern for the spiritual growth and vitality of his people. Not only does he want to refute the false teaching, but he also wants to encourage and reassure the genuine believers. And he's concerned about the edification of his children in the faith. So we see this. Expressed in several statements in this letter. He writes in chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He writes in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. In chapter 5, verse 13, he declares, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. As you may know, in this book, John provides a series of tests that are intended to help genuine believers come to the assurance of their salvation. And he wants to make sure that all of them come to the confidence of their faith in Christ. So we're going to examine these tests as we... Go through this book. He also wants them to be firmly grounded in sound doctrine. And so he uh, makes sure they have a firm grasp on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He also wants them to be fully committed to loving one another. The word agape appears 51 times in this little book. This is a prominent theme that we'll see over and over again. The double assertion that God is light and God is love adds to the biblical teaching concerning the nature of God. So we see these purposes for 1 John, and we see it's different from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. 1 John was written to those who believe on the name of the Son of God, so that they might know they have eternal life. Listen, you and I live many, many years removed from the situation of Asia Minor in the first century. And yet, these are things that are just as relevant for us as they were to the believers back then. We still have the same challenges And we still have the same spiritual needs. So with all this in mind, we'll move now into the study of that book. And we'll do that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning to help us to uh, understand these things that are so important for the study of this New Testament book. And Lord, we pray that you help us to uh, grasp these things and that we would... uh, Approach the book of First John With these things in mind Lord once again today we pray That if there is anyone in this place That does not know Christ as Lord and Savior They would come to know you Lord we pray if there are those that uh, Have uh, professed their faith in Christ But have not followed in believers baptism We pray that they would take that uh, Next step with you of discipleship Lord we pray that uh, Uh, If there are those that need to be a part of this church family, you would put that on their hearts this morning. They would know this is where you want them to serve you. And Lord, we pray that uh, all of us as your children would seek to be all that you want us to be. And Lord, we ask that you would help us with that. So Lord, help us to respond again to your word and um, to be ready to do the things you want us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.